You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. I will finally finish Hebrews 11 this week, and we will hear God's Word from verses 32 through 40. But before we hear God's Word to us this morning, let us call upon Him once again in prayer and ask for His help. Oh Lord, as we just sang, in your love and in your mercy, you do truly lead us in the way that we should go. But we confess that sometimes the way you lead us feels hard, and we grow weary in the journey. We begin to doubt, we begin to murmur. And there are days when we feel like we can't take another step. And so I pray that as we once again hear you speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would take your precious word and plant it deep within us, that our roots would grow deeper, and we would bear good fruit. We would find strength and nourishment to follow you once again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear God's word to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God to you this morning. We all have expectations and assumptions regarding how the Christian life should operate. Often those expectations and assumptions include that God will 
always respond to faith and obedience in the same way. As if God will always give the same answer to our prayers and that living by faith will always lead to the same earthly outcomes. So when those expectations are not met, and sometimes God's answers and our earthly outcomes vary, we immediately assume there must be some kind of problem, either with God's love or with our faith. If we believe the problem is with God, then we are probably assuming if God loved me, then he would have responded to me in this particular way. God didn't respond to me in this particular way, and therefore God must not actually love me. If, on the other hand, we assume the problem is on our end, then we are probably thinking, if I had had enough or the right kind of faith, then God would have responded to me in this particular way. God did not respond to me in this particular way, and therefore I must not have enough or the right kind of faith. When earthly outcomes do not meet our expectations and assumptions, therefore, we often begin internally wondering, is the problem with God's love or is the problem with my faith? However, the answer may very well be like Jesus' answer to his disciples when they encounter a man who is born blind and they immediately assume there's only two answers here. Either the problem is that this man sinned, and that's why he was born blind, or the problem is his parents sinned, and that's why he was born blind. And Jesus says, no, you're you're wrong. Instead, Jesus replies, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples, okay, you see a problem, but you don't actually have all of the appropriate biblical categories to start evaluating and understanding this problem. When we face challenging circumstances and have questions, we immediately want to find the answer. We immediately want to just find the practical way out of the problem. But we often struggle to find those answers because we don't actually have all of the biblical categories we need to have in order to even understand the question. I have often found in pastoral counseling is you come to me with your cares, your concerns, your sorrows, and your struggles that one of my main tasks is not actually to immediately help you solve the problem, but to provide you with the biblical categories to even understand your problem. For we often exacerbate the problem and we add to our suffering when we don't have the right categories. This morning, therefore, I'm going to give you some more biblical categories to hopefully help you better understand how God responds to faithful prayers and obedience when his people live by faith in him. 
And as I do that, I want you to see that earthly outcomes, the, the circumstantial results, are not the measure of God's love or your faith. As if when you see what happens on earth, then you know, well, that's how strong God's love is, or that's how strong or weak my faith is. No earthly outcomes are not the measure of God's love or your faith, but these differing outcomes are simply different paths to the same better promise. In other words, when God doesn't respond to your faith the way you expect, the explanation is not automatically God's love is deficient or my faith is deficient. The answer may simply be God is working in better ways to bring you to better circumstances or outcomes than you would have asked for or imagined. From this text, therefore, I'm going to show you three ways that God responds to the faith of his people. And the first way is that sometimes God blesses or he responds to the faith of his people with earthly triumphs. You see this in verse 32 through the first half of verse 35. The author, as he's wrapping up this section of his letter, of his sermon, experiences what every preacher inevitably experiences, which is the realization he is running out of time and he can't say everything that he wants to say. So he begins to race through names to get to his main point. He mentions Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samson, who represents the period of the judges. He mentions King David, who represents the early monarchy. And he mentions Samuel, who represents the being the last judge and the first of the prophets. And so then the author mentions the prophets as a general category. And the prophets would call to mind men like Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, among others. Then he summarizes these various triumphs, these victories that these heroes of the faith experienced. And each phrase is general enough to include multiple examples, but he probably has specific people in, in mind with every phrase that he mentions. These triumphs of faith include conquering kingdoms. You can read many stories of the, the judges or of King David. These heroes enforced justice. He's probably thinking there of Samuel. They obtained promises in the sense of God had told them a specific outcome would happen, and it happened. Like when God tells Gideon, I'm going to give the Midianites into your hand, and he gives the Midianites into his hand. They stopped the mouths of lions. You, of course, probably think of Daniel. They were able to quench the power of fire. He's probably thinking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. They escaped the edge of the sword, meaning there were people trying to kill them, but God didn't let them kill them. So you think of David escaping Saul, or Elijah escaping Jezebel, or Jeremiah escaping Jehoiakim. They were made strong out of weakness. 
I think he's referring there to Samson, who has lost all of his earthly strength, but he prays one more time to be able to push the pillars apart and defeat the Philistines. They became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Again, David judges multiple examples. The author concludes these examples of triumph by mentioning women who received back their dead by resurrection. This almost certainly refers to the widow of Zarephath, whose son Elijah erased from the dead, or the Shunammite woman whom Elisha raised from the dead. But all of these men and women experienced great deliverance from sorrows and sufferings and dangers through their faith in God. God blessed their faith with earthly deliverance and, and triumph. And I am here to encourage you, God still responds this way to faith today. He still delivers his people from suffering, sometimes in supernatural ways. He still works mighty wonders through the faithful obedience of his servants. Never underestimate the power of a faithful servant in God's hand, that when we obey the Lord, he does mighty works upon the earth. So pray and obey, knowing that God answers prayers and triumphs through faithful obedience. I believe these verses encourage you to pray and obey with optimism, watching eagerly for the Lord to act. So don't let pessimism or discouragement silence your prayers or stifle your faithful activity, thinking this, this is pointless. It's, it's not going to accomplish anything. Many of you have seen the Lord's protection and provision in your life. You could tell me stories of times you thought, I had no, no idea how I was going to get out of this situation. And the Lord, he provided. He's given you what you've asked for at times. We ought to rejoice. We ought to give thanks. I think this is a Great encouragement as you have prayer requests in your life, write them down and then go back. And when you see the Lord's answers, write those down. And you just have a, a trail of faith that just keeps leading you back to the Lord to see all the times that he provided for you and protect you, protected you. For this is God's loving blessing to his people. He watches over them. He cares for them. He guards them by his power through their faith, as Peter says. So know that sometimes God blesses the faith of his people with earthly triumphs. That is a biblical category you need to have. But there's another biblical category that you need to have. Because number two, sometimes God blesses the faith of his people with tragedies. You see, the first response is often what we are expecting and hoping for. You're not surprised as you keep reading through Hebrews 11, which has told us about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho falling. And so as he continues to go on and you hear of these other triumphs, you think, yes, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And yet you'll notice in the second half of verse 35 that without taking a breath, the examples very quickly change. And you, you might be surprised to read, some were tortured. I don't think that's what you were expecting to come next. 
But you need to notice that the second half of verse 35 through verse 38 is still cataloging what God's people have experienced through faith. Through faith, in verse 33, is controlling everything that comes after it. You could even insert that phrase throughout and say, through faith, some were tortured. Through faith, others suffered mocking and flogging. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword through faith. Through faith, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. These earthly outcomes were no less the result of faith than the first half of the list. This is especially clear in verse 39. For you notice the author says, all these, every single example that he has given, all these though commended through their faith, which means, one, everyone listed was acting in faith. They were being obedient. So you can't understand the two halves of these lists as the first half had faith, the second half didn't. No, he says, all these, though commended through faith. But you notice the second part too. All these were commended through faith. That means God was pleased with all of them. So again, you cannot explain the difference in these two halves as well. The first half was the group that God loved and was pleased with. And the second half was the group that God was angry with and, and displeased with. All these were commended through faith. Therefore, at times, God answers our prayers and he responds to our faith by delivering us from suffering. But sometimes God answers our prayers and responds to our faith, not by prohibiting or removing our suffering, but simply saying, I am going to sustain you in it. Sometimes God says, I'm going to keep you from pain or I'm going to take pain away. Other times God simply says, I'm going to uphold you in pain. And the difference between those outcomes, the triumphs on one hand, the tragedies on the others, the difference is not the strength of God's love or of your faith. The difference is God's sovereign, wise, loving, and sometimes hidden will. For again, when you notice that all of these men and women acted through or by faith, the obvious contrasts are striking, right? Some, he says, through faith escaped the sword. And then you read just a little bit farther and he says, some through faith were killed by the sword. So we have very similar circumstances. And God responds to these similar circumstances in different ways. I think of James and Peter in Acts chapter 12. If you've read Acts chapter 12, you know that James and Peter, two mighty apostles from the Lord, are arrested by the same King Herod. And two very different things happen. You read in, in just a sentence, James, who's arrested, was put to death by the sword. And then you read about a much longer story of how Peter's just miraculously released from prison. <laughs> God just opens doors. He leads them out by an angel. And Peter gets to go free. 
James was in the same prison under the same king, and the Lord didn't unlock all the doors and lead James out. And you cannot convince me that the difference is because James had less faith than Peter or that God loved James less than he loved Peter. It's not the difference. Or I think of the difference between the prophets Jeremiah and Uriah. Jeremiah, you probably remember. Uriah, you may not remember. Well, in Jeremiah 26, we read that Jeremiah prophesies against King Jehoiakim, which, surprise, makes Jehoiakim really mad. And so he says, I want Jeremiah dead. But God doesn't let Jehoiakim kill Jeremiah. But then Jeremiah inserts, almost as a parenthetical in verses 20 through 23, a really quick story about another prophet who Jeremiah says was also prophesying in the name of the Lord and was prophesying against King Jehoiakim. And his name is Uriah. Uriah was a prophet of the Lord like Jeremiah. He was saying the exact same things Jeremiah was saying. And Jehoiakim wants to kill Uriah just like he wanted to kill Jeremiah. So Uriah runs away to Egypt, but the king of Egypt captures him and sends him back. And yet again, we read Jehoiakim put Uriah to death by the sword. Two prophets. Both prophets of the Lord prophesying the exact same things against the exact same king. The king wants to put both of them to death. One dies, the other is spared. Sometimes God provides earthly deliverance from suffering. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes God's people suffer tragedies through faith. And I use that word intentionally. I was originally going to call this sermon the, the triumphs and trials of faith, but I just didn't feel like trial was a strong enough word for what we read about. These are tragedies of faith. Some were told were tortured. As I read that, I, I think of a story that you, you find of a 99-year-old scribe named Eleazar who lived during the days of the, the Maccabees and the Jewish revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And this 99-year-old scribe was offered freedom if he would just break God's law. If I remember correctly, they, they just wanted him to eat pork. And they said, well, we'll let you go. And he wouldn't do it. And so he was beaten to death in a gruesome fashion. Others were told were mocked, they were flogged, they were chained, they were imprisoned. Some were stoned to death. This is according to Jewish tradition how the prophet Jeremiah actually eventually died. He was stoned to death. Some were told were sawn in two. Again, according to Jewish tradition, that's how the prophet Isaiah was eventually killed. They did not live in earthly splendor and prosperity. They went around in sheep and goat skins. They were homeless and destitute. It's probably describing Elijah, Elisha, and many of the prophets. So not only did these heroes of faith experience suffering, they experienced profound suffering. There isn't a limit on the kind of earthly suffering God's people may face. 
So the triumphs teach us that God can and will at times deliver us from earthly suffering. The tragedies teach us he doesn't always do that. And this is very important to see. It may not sound encouraging. I believe it is soul-sustaining. Because if you only see the first half, you are going to be deceived by so-called gospels out there that tell you, if you just name it and claim it, God will give it. You just have enough faith, everything will go well for you. You'll be healthy all the time. You'll be wealthy. You'll just have all the prosperity in the world. But guess what? There are going to be days where it, it's hard. And if you don't have the second part of this lift, your faith is going to be undone. You're either going to start hating God or just despair of yourself and say, I just will never have enough faith to guard me from suffering. And you're not going to endure, which is the whole point of Hebrews. You must endure. And so you need this biblical category. How can I say that God is still blessing faith with these tragedies? Does that mean that torture and poverty and death are good things? No, doesn't mean that. To say that God uses suffering for good is very different than saying suffering is good. There will be no suffering in eternity, which is one way we know it, it's not good. So to say God blesses faith with tragedies doesn't mean suffering is good and a blessing itself. It means that God is so good, so wise, and so sovereign that he will even overrule sin and suffering for the blessing of his people. That's how great your God is. He's not just great enough that he'll keep it from you. He is so great that he will overrule it that what would harm you is now ultimately going to heal you. That's a whole other level of goodness, wisdom, love, and sovereignty. These blessings will include sanctification. Through suffering, God will increasingly conform you to the image of Christ. It will include greater intimacy with God. The psalmist says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And I'd simply note there, it, it does not say the Lord will always feel near to the brokenhearted. It just says he is near. He's there whether you can feel him or not. But ultimately, the blessing of tragedy is that it will actually produce the eternal weight of glory that you are waiting for. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, when he contrasts the light momentary affliction with the eternal weight of glory, he does not say the light momentary affliction will simply transition into the eternal weight of glory. He says the light momentary affliction will produce the eternal weight of glory, which means... Every second of suffering that you experience on earth, even if the last days, moments of your life are agony, are not wasted. 
There is no such thing in the Christian life as useless, pointless, purposeless suffering. It, it doesn't exist for the believer. And so you need to have this biblical category in your mind and in your heart for when you suffer. Knowing that varying earthly outcomes are not the measure of God's love or of your faith, as if you wouldn't suffer if God just loved you more if you, or if you believed better. The triumphs and tragedies of faith are determined by God's good and sovereign will. And so sometimes God will answer you with triumph. Sometimes God will answer you with tragedy. But either way, number three, God always blesses faith with something better. Whether we experience earthly triumphs or tragedies, we must always remember that faith is moving us to something better than anything we experience on earth. And knowing this will guard us on the one hand from idolatry as if we come to love the, the earthly blessings more than the heavenly blessings. And it will guard us from apostasy on the other hand from saying this, this just isn't worth it. For no earthly deliverance in blessing is as good as the deliverance from sin and the blessing of eternal life. And no earthly suffering is worth forsaking what is to come to just avoid suffering now. And so we need to understand this to guard us against bitterness and envy. For sometimes, again, we operate as if God's promises to his children are that he will be fair. Meaning we, we think God has promised that he's going to give all of his children earth, uh, equal earthly blessing and equal earthly suffering. Kids, this is your greatest complaint against your parents all the time, isn't it? It, it isn't fair. You did not give me exactly what you gave my brother or sister. Kids, I hate to break it to me. God has not promised to be fair. God has promised to be just, which means he will never do what is wrong. But sometimes he will give some of his children more earthly blessings than others. Some of his children will suffer more earthly sorrow than others. But either way, God has promised to work all things for our best. And best has to be considered from an eternal heavenly perspective, not a temporary earthly perspective. All will experience what the author calls in verse 35, a better life. See, twice the author speaks of something better in these verses. In verse 35, we again see another obvious contrast. He, he's just described some who experience a, a physical resurrection, but we know that was just a, a temporary resurrection. Those sons who were raised from the dead were going to die again. And then he immediately goes to these who were tortured, who could have been released, but they, they didn't forsake the Lord. And it says they did so not because they were expecting they were just immediately going to be raised from the dead again. It, it was they were expecting a better resurrection, a better life. 
So even though they would not experience the same earthly triumphs as others, their end would still ultimately be gain, not loss. When you know you are awaiting something better than anything you can have on this earth, then earthly gains and losses will not matter to you as much. I was going over this text this morning with my two oldest kids at the breakfast table, and I tried to explain it to him this way. As Christians, as heirs of Christ, we will inherit everything. We will inherit the earth, for Christ is all richness and glory, and everything belongs to him, and he has promised that those who follow him by faith will receive him and all that belongs to him. So, Christian, your inheritance is everything, all of the wealth and glory you can imagine. Now, when you have that perspective, as you go through life now, all of God's earthly provisions are like having a bag of pennies. Kids, is a penny worth very much? Good, you're shaking your head this way. No, it is not. So as we go through life, as God provides for us and blesses us in various, various ways, it's, it's like he adds a penny to our bag. It's wonderful. When we experience loss, again, compared to the riches of Christ in heaven, those losses are like God taking away one of our pennies. Now, how many of you honestly believe that when we are with the Lord in heaven and all that he is and has is ours, we are going to be going around to everyone else and saying, how many pennies were in your bag when you got here? You had 17 pennies. I only had six. No. Who cares about pennies when you have Christ and all that is in here? Now again, hear me. When we just look at the, the joys and sorrows of life now, I'm not saying they're actually small. I'm just saying that compared to what is awaiting us, they are pennies compared to infinite riches. See, the author also talks about something better in verses 39 and 40. He says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. In other words, he's saying that this whole group, those who experienced great triumphs and those who experienced great tragedies, ultimately all died in the exact same position, which was they had not yet received the fullness of God's promise. Because what has the author been arguing throughout Hebrews? He's been arguing the new covenant and the blessings of the new covenant that come in Christ are far better than anything that was experienced under the old covenant. And all of these Old Testament state saints died before Christ and the new covenant were inaugurated. And so the author is trying to tell the Hebrews, see, God wanted us to be a part of this. And so what we have experienced on the other side of Christ and the new covenant is greater than everything that they experienced. Now, here's the argument. 
if God could sustain them and they could endure by faith when they only had the shadow of the promise, how much more can we endure and God sustain us when we are living with the full substance of the promise in Christ? He's saying we're in a better position than they were. So Christian, do not become so fixated on your earthly experiences. They're a matter of pennies. Keep your eyes fixed upon the better life to come. Our earthly experiences will vary, but God is bringing us all to the same glorious end. And when we experience that end, we will bless God and we will kiss the path that he paved to bring us to him. We won't compare and fuss about our bag of pennies. So know that sometimes God will give you earthly deliverances. Sometimes God will simply give you endurance through those earthly hardships. But either way, he will give you more of himself and the experience will serve to bring you to himself. But I just want to close with this last observation from our text. For I, I love the phrase that he interrupts himself to insert in verse 38. Do you see that? As he describes the great suffering of God's people who through faith were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, who were wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, he interrupts himself to just say of these suffering servants, the world wasn't worthy of them. Why does he say that? I think one reason is because when you look at someone suffering in that way, who everyone else is rejecting, who's, who's homeless, they just have nothing on this earth, our immediate conclusion is, well, they're, they're not worthy. <laughs> they're being rejected. They're afflicted. Nobody wants them. Nobody thinks they're worth anything. And he says, no, no, no. The problem was not that they weren't worthy of the world. The problem was the world wasn't worthy of them. Which means the second thing. In God's eyes, these suffering servants were infinitely valuable. And they were a gift to the world. They were a gift that the world was not worthy of. And I think this is really important to see. How were they a gift to the world? Well, I believe they're a gift to the world because God's suffering servants are the ongoing presence of Christ on this earth. For who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is the triumphant king. But we are also told that he first came to earth as the suffering servant. Jesus, we know, was tortured because he refused to accept release. And he endured that torture not just so he could rise to a better life. He endured that torture so that every single one of us who have faith in him could rise to a better life. 
He was mocked. He was flogged. He was not one of those who escaped the power of the sword, but he suffered it on the cross. He was destitute. He was afflicted. He was mistreated. He wandered about the earth without a home, and the world was never worthy of him. Did Christ suffer in this way because God just didn't love him enough? The Father does not love anybody like he loves his son. Did Christ suffer in this way because Jesus, he just didn't have enough faith. He, he just didn't know the power of name it and claim it. No one has had perfect faith depending in the Father and obeying the Father all the way to the point of death like Jesus Christ. No, he suffered this way because it was God's will for him to suffer this way. So that all of our triumphs and tragedies would lead us to a better life. Because apart from Jesus, none of us are made perfect. And therefore, I believe we also become gifts to the world of whom the world is not worthy when we image Christ as lesser suffering servants. We, as Paul says to the Colossians, are filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, which doesn't mean Christ didn't suffer enough for our salvation. It means now Christ is no longer on the earth as the suffering servant. And so the world can't see that anymore. But as God's people walk by faith in the Lord and still follow him by faith, even as they suffer, they are showing the world Christ's afflictions. So Christian, you are a gift to the world because you not only speak the truth of the gospel, but as you endure suffering by faith, you display the power and truth of the gospel. You see, you are not just winning people to Christ as they see your triumphs of faith. I believe your testimony is all the more greater as you follow the Lord in your tragedies of faith. Because do you remember what Satan accuses Job of to the Lord? He says, well, Lord, of course Job follows you. You've given him everything. What shuts the devil up when Job loses everything and still says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Christian, you often think you can only be useful in this world when you are triumphant. I'm here to tell you, you are more useful in this world when you suffer tragedy. And like Job, you say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I'm blessing his name. And I'm walking with him. So triumph in Christ as you suffer for Christ. And in this way, you will reveal Christ to an unworthy world. Let's pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge that this is far harder to do than it is to say. It's easy in one sense to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But then when you actually take away, we don't naturally feel like blessing your name. So I pray that you would impress upon each one of us this morning that we don't know everything, 
that we are not wiser than you. We are not more loving than you. And help us, therefore, to say, I don't understand everything you do, Father. But I trust you, and I will follow you. And I pray that as the world sees your suffering servants, that they would be led to see the suffering servant who took on our flesh, who suffered and died for our sin, but who rose to a better life that we might rise with him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.